Hello and welcome to the FitZone podcast, Financing International Trade. I'm Catherine Morton, Head of Trade, Treasury and Risk at TXF, and I'm joined here at the ICC Banking Commission annual meeting in Miami by Peter Mulroy, Secretary General of FCI, and we're going to talk about the future of factoring. Peter, you're celebrating FCI's 50th anniversary this year. What's the image of factoring nowadays? That's an interesting question. <laughs> the reason why, uh, one of the projects we're doing in FCI is looking back at the 5,000 year history of, of the industry. And uh, the whole industry has been based on this concept of trust. Uh, three words come to mind, trust, middleman, slash agent, uh, and um, and basically, not just financial trust, but also production trust, meaning handing your goods over to a, a factor. In, those, in the old days, was considered a, uh, the, the old line factoring, where the factory acted as a merchant, a, tr- a middleman, a trading company. So if you're giving something of that, of that value to someone or some legal entity, uh, you're trusting that entity that they're going to... Um, Basically, li- liquidate those those products, sell those products, and liquidate those the receivable into cash. Uh, so, circle back to your question. Um, for me, the view of factoring in the last fifty years has has gone from I think a very strong place of trust to a place like maybe in the last 20, 30 years of more. Um, I don't want to use the word. Uh, I don't want to use the word uh, loan shark, but you know it had kind of a negative reputation. Um, it had a negative re- reputation because of the fact that it was I call it the wild wild west syndrome. You had all these uh, companies and individuals that looked at factoring and receivables as a quick way of getting rich, and especially in markets that were un- highly unregulated. Really, uh, just a no a nomad nomad's land for uh, just basically putting your your sign up and doing factoring, um, and to me, those days are over. What makes you say those days are over? I mean, you still have unregulated markets. You still have the wild wild west syndrome. You still have companies wanting to uh, generate income, you know, and, and the chance of becoming rich. You still have all those things, and and no better example is China today, where the the government has allowed the formation of commercial factors, and uh, overnight you've gone from a handful of non-bank commercial factors to over eight thousand today. So that's an, it's in a great it's the perfect example of a, a and it is slightly uh, regulated, but. Obviously, having that many in such a short period of time means that it's very unregulated. So anyone's just opening their window and throwing out the factoring sign and saying that they can uh, finance receivables. But going back to your point, I mean, what I see different today is that uh, the the trust, the concept of trust, is back in the in the factoring in the T of factoring. the, the The concept of trust is back. And why is it back? It's back for three reasons. One, and most importantly, the financial crisis. The financial crisis took the word trust out of finance. 
for a period of time. Uh, and once they discovered what had transpired, uh, they realized and recognized that factoring during this very time, this time of upheaval uh, was a kind of a, a bastion of security, meaning uh, individuals and companies could go to factors and, and obtain liquidity, obtain financing. Um, in, a, in a time when banks were pulling away from small to medium-sized enterprises. And so I would say first and foremost that people found factoring and receivables finance in general as a place of trust. They could, they could invest in it and get a return from it. Um, secondly is uh, the governments started viewing uh, factoring as a sign of trust. Um, you had um, back then and you know, 10 years ago, uh, the reaction from the financial crisis was Basel III. And, uh, you know, you already had already in Basel II the ability of, uh, the, the, let's say, the mechanism to transfer risk from the seller to their buyers, their customers, which was a good thing for factors because if that, tr that risk is transferred, then they can basically show that their risk profile, their risk-weighted assets, assets has been decreased because typically the buyers are stronger than the supplier. So you had uh, a recognition, you know, that uh, this product, if it's done right, is also, there's trust, there can be trust placed in it. And most importantly to the regulators, the source of repayment is very strong. Um, and then I would say the third thing was, um, I would just say just the evolution of banks in general. Um, you have a history of banks, call it dating factoring, you know, where they have, uh, they've come in and they've come out, they've invested, they've uh, divested. And what you've seen in the last 10 years or so is a significant uh, push for investment. And why is that? Well, I mean, it's all the things I mentioned, but uh, most importantly, they view this uh, as an opportunity to, to develop a new source of income, a new source of revenue for their institutions in a market where companies are seeing a huge increase in demand for solutions in open account. So, but, and why is that? Trust on both sides. So that, that's what I think the biggest change is. And I think, uh, yeah, it's a new age. It's a new age. I always say this is the golden age of our industry, um, but it's also a new age for our industry. Factoring is quite a hands-on process with regular interaction, following up debt for payments and things like that. How does it lend itself to technology? I mean, I always say, you know, we, we're in this world of fintechs and blockchain and, and e-invoicing and everything being electronic and everything being um, um, just in time. And, 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 you know, to me, the evolution of, of the factoring industry, going back to the age of the uh, Internet, the development of the Internet, really was one of the first to take advantage of, let's say, the, the ease in processing. So you, you, you know, I mean, back to in 2000, for example, my company, my, pre, my previous employer had something like a thousand employees. And by 2009, at the height of the recession, it was reduced from, from 500 to, excuse me, 1,000 to 500 or even less. 
I mean, half of the employees were gone. How, why is that? It's because of automation. It's because of the ease in processing. So many factors, and I think rightfully so, call themselves fintechs because they've already invested in the technology. What, what's lacking is the bridge that connects the seller, buyer, and the factor from a technology standpoint um, where all parties are onboarded, where all parties can see a transaction like in a blockchain uh, where there's you know, uh, ultimate transparency, uh, security, um, and ease to which the speed in which uh, an invoice is processed and, fi and financed. Still, the industry has a ways to, ways to go, but I want to, st you know, I advocate the fact that the industry is already certainly halfway there based on all the investments it's made. And you go to any, you interview any factoring company, and you know, we, we receive applications all the time from members of future members around the world. And then one of the questions on their application is, what technology do you have? And I can tell you nine out of 10 times, the technology firms mentioned are the, are the top 10 that we all know, you know, that are very invested in this industry. So it's already there and it's already happening. And, you know, yeah. the concept of blockchain is the next question mark. In what way? The, the commercial viability of blockchain and its you know, real application and its real uh, impact. Uh, will it achieve all, its, all of its hopes and objectives, potential objectives, which is speed, which is transparency, which is security, which is, uh, um, yeah, I mean, drilling down from the, uh, in the risk pole as well, you know, going downstream and financing suppliers, SMEs, true SMEs. So that's still to be, I think, um, I, you know, uh, it's in my mind, it's still a question mark. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you said before, it's a hands-on business. Why is it a hands-on business? It's a hands-on business because the biggest risk to factoring is fraud. So it's like, you know, you have this intangible asset. This asset is called an intangible asset because of the fact that you can't touch, a re touch and feel a receivable. You know, you do, have the, you do have the invoice and you have the invoice details, but uh, you, you require, there's a tremendous amount of uh, hands-on investigative processes all the way from the onboarding to the collection that's required by the factor, you know, and all the different variations. And you have to, um, you have to be on top of your game or you're going to lose. The FCI moved into reverse factoring last year. There's certainly some problems with the image of reverse factoring after Abengoa and Carillion, etc. How's reverse factoring going? You know, it's really interesting. I mean, I see these companies that are investing in, in the space and the ones that are really, let's say, kind of taking off are the ones that are doing uh, either dynamic discounting, so they're providing uh, the technology uh, or the know-how to anchor buyers and anchor buyers are doing it on their own and that that basically that doesn't necessarily require uh, the whole gambit of uh, receivables purchase and, and KYC AML and you know all the things that banks have to be let's say cognizant and wary of um, so where I see the growth right now is they're skirting the issue by going and doing a uh, early discount programs 
uh, on a, on a non-purchase basis. And so if they're not purchasing the receivable, then the, the logic is that, well, I don't have a contract with the supplier, so I don't need to do a KYC due diligence on the supplier. And okay, that's fine and well, but I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, not knowing your counterparties is really dangerous in this world of factoring, whether it be reverse or seller-centric. And I don't advocate for it. I advocate for you know, transparency and, and knowing your clients. And, and uh, so a person, I think that's gonna catch up to the industry. You're gonna see accidents, you're gonna see uh, problems arise, money laundering as an example. You're gonna see it, it's gonna happen. Um, and then secondly, uh, uh, is the fact that for, for our industry, like for example, this Abengoa or uh, Carillion cases, um, you kind of have a, um, what's the word? You have a manipulation of, of proper accounting, following proper accounting principles. Now the question is, is that the fault of their accountants or is that the fault of the company that's uh, booking the transaction, the anchor buyer? I don't know. Uh, but I do know that both companies' risks were slapped by Moody's and others for not properly divulging and being transparent about the exposure on their balance sheet. So from the standpoint of knowing what, what these transactions are, all of a sudden this company had uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of exposure, short-term exposure on their balance sheet and it just wasn't properly identified as programs, supply chain finance programs. Number one, and um, and number two, that the you know the banks also didn't really uh, make it known. You know, it's it you know, and, and maybe they don't have a responsibility. At the end of the day, it's the accounting firm and the sell the buyer that are obligated to to report these type of exposures in their balance sheet. So I think there's, there, from that standpoint, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned, and uh, my hope is that, um, I, I, I mean, I, of course, I'm just, I'm an advocate for pure, pure uh, transparency. You know, to hide something like that really is, a da is very dangerous. It's dangerous for the company, but it's also dangerous for the public. And. Um, I think, yeah, I think that uh, there's going to be, um, there's, this is not the first and this won't be the last case that you'll see. And my, 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 you know, of course, my real concern is the implications that these, these, uh, these programs and lack of, lack of, let's say, acknowledgement of the exposures is going to have in our industry. So what type of, let's say, reaction the regulators are going to have uh, and uh, policymakers, so you know, there's still, there's still. I mean, this is the third case in a row in in literally four years. You had the first case in the Banamex case, Citibank in Mexico it was close to 500 million. You had the uh, case in Spain with the, with the Abengoa. You had the case now in Carilion. These are all 500 plus million, you know, dollar cases. And um, yeah, I mean, it's going to have a reaction, and you know, it's going to have an effect. Mm. So, so 
So it's another, another one of the T's, the trust. And the, and the trust it goes back to trust, exactly. Pure, pure and simple. Yeah, Catherine, you're absolutely right. So it doesn't, it doesn't do anything, any, any benefit to our industry. Yeah. It hurts our reputation, damages our brand. And it has a kind of a cascading effect to all the receivable finance products, not just you know, reverse factoring or payable finance, but also uh, traditional factoring, invoice discounting. I mean, you know, because people kind of view this as a it's, a, it's a trade finance product, but in the open account space. So you have such a, you have such a big hit. If people are gonna question the validity and the you know, strength and capability and trust of, of these products. Do you think invoices as collateral are a big solution to the trade finance gap? Oh, I think I, I absolutely believe it's a huge uh, solution to the trade finance gap. And don't forget, 90% of global trade will be on open account by 2020 is what some of the estimates are. 90%. And uh, so if you have, I think, uh, uh, the Asia Development Bank estimates $1.5 trillion in, in um, capacity, lack of capacity to support SMEs, um, companies that have not been able to obtain trade finance. Um, so, yes, these companies could, if they were selling on open account terms, which I, I assume they are, uh, based on this uh, 90%, uh, let's say, view, that, uh, that receivables finance is the natural solution for these companies. And um, it's a combination of, uh, you know, product knowledge, knowing that the product is available, um, and promotion by the industry, like organizations like FCI. Yeah, but if, if you look at invoice discounting, one of the things, so we just came out with our preliminary statistics, and uh, you'll see that uh, there was a significant drop in invoice discounting volumes, like a 10% drop uh, in volume uh, in market share. In the, in the share of all overall receivables finance business, there was a drop of market share of t by 10% of invoice discounting why? Um, I, I, that, that there's been a switch from invoice discounting and recourse factoring to non-recourse factoring. Uh, so, so companies want to have the off-balance sheet uh, treatment, the ability to um, strengthen their balance sheets, sellers. Um, they also want the risk coverage on the debtors in case of default or bankruptcy. And... Um, yeah, I mean, so you see, so, uh, and, and reverse factoring, because all, most of reverse factoring uh, payables programs are on non-recourse purchase, purchase arrangements. So you have these three influences that are, I think, resulting in this shift away from where you're not, you're not uh, purchasing receivables on a recourse or an invoice discounting basis, but you're actually offering a full non-recourse program for them, for the seller. What competition are you seeing from platform providers? How does that sit with FCI? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I think, you know, that, that's a question that's going to be resolved in the next 10 years. I mean, you have um, a conflict. You have a conflict with companies that offer traditional trade finance today that don't have open account solutions in their organizations. And um, they're being pushed by their client base to have something, an alternative to traditional tree finance services. 
So I, you see uh, in the market these companies, these financial institutions drifting towards, call them common platforms, backed by blockchain technology. And you see the R3, Marco Polo, the IBM pro program, and others that are investigating this whole, let's say, uh, evolution by creating, you know, let's say one platform under a blockchain, you know, technology uh, that provides solutions to the supplier for open account transactions. So it's a big question mark. And as I said, I don't, I can't answer that today, but I see that being answered in the next 10 years. And I believe that it is a, it's a threat to the, to certainly the FCI model. Um, but, um, you know, where there's an old saying, I'd rather beat them than join them. Um, meaning I think FCI is going to jump on the, the uh, um, blockchain bandwagon uh, and offer something as well as, as a complementary platform for our members. Some organizations are looking for some underlying universal trade bank to sit behind all these initiatives. Your thoughts? You know, I don't know enough about it, I'll be very honest. I do know that, uh, I do know that, you know, the, the, one of the, let's say, challenges in a blockchain arrangement is that there is no overarching, um, call it a, uh, a you know, a, a back office, meaning the back office is blockchain. So you don't need an organization standing behind it. You have to have rules, you have to have, uh, Obviously, the uh, partners, you know, on the on board and on the system, but you don't need someone orchestrating it. So the question in my mind is, you know, will Swift, will FCI, and others be really relevant in this post-blockchain world? You know, this is the question mark, and that's why I go back to the comment: I'd rather beat them than join them. I'd rather, I think that's what I'd rather join them than beat them. No, I'd rather beat them than join them. You know, um, I prefer to be at least in a competitive uh, arrangement where we have something else to offer. And it's kind of a sense kind of why, you know, we developed the FCI reverse platform to begin with, because let's be honest, most of the financial institutions out there that are doing supply chain today are doing it, uh, are doing it, are the ones that are doing it are the large, the large global banks, the national banks, you know, the small private health banks, they're not in the game. And why are they not in the game? I think they're not in the game because number one, the barrier to entry, the costs of investment and in, in technology is too high. Uh, and number two, um, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a shift in culture and mindset to go into the open account space. And uh, I think a lot of times, you know, there's just confusion and people are not prepared. So. If you have an organization like FCI standing behind offering a platform whereby the investment costs are negligible and you have the training behind it to help prepare the evolution uh, to, to offer open account services and, uh, and thirdly, uh, and also very important, to be able to provide a solution to cross-border uh, uh, supplier onboarding. And a, and a platform like FCI can do do all three things, so you know that's the motivation why you know there was a need, our members were expressing the need, and that's why we came you know and decided to roll this out. You're celebrating your 50th anniversary this year. How many members do you have? We are we are almost off 400 members. We're just shy of 400 members. We're still in 90 countries, 
And we're growing. We're, we're adding, um, you know, I think our objective this year to add something like uh, 40 members. Um, we always have terminations because it's just the natural thing and mergers and acquisitions. And But um, our hope is that we'll see a significant increase, you know, in the membership in 2018. Thanks, Peter. You've been listening to FitZone Podcast, Financing International Trade. I'm Catherine Morton from TXF. Thanks for listening and join us next time.